Please open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33. In my Bible, that is on page 804. I, I don't think that helps you, but um, when we were planning the retreat, Devin asked me if there, were, if there was anything that I might want to teach, and I, I didn't know if it was retreat appropriate, but this is something that's I'm going to share with you this weekend that's been uh, a theme through my entire life, and I'm going to explain why that is and why I think it's very important. Um, these messages are introductory, and they are intended to get you to think. So I'm, you're, you're going to get done and say, I need some blanks filled in. Maybe we can gather another time and fill in some of those blanks. Um, even if you're here today and you are a child, uh, what I'm going to share with you is crucial to your life. And you need to know these things and think about these things. And most of you here are not too young to pay attention to these. So with that, um, I would like to read two verses from the middle of the book of Ezekiel. Verse 10, chapter 33, verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, so God is quoting what the people are saying to Ezekiel, and this is what they're saying. Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Let's pray. Lord, this is a sobering passage, but there's life in here. And there's goodness that you've put in this text for us. And we pray that you would open our eyes so we could see you and how good you are. So come and meet with us now and teach us from your holy word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I first came across this passage of Scripture 47 years ago when I was in college. Whoa, that's a long time ago to be in college. I was, at the time, taking upper-level courses in history, literature, and philosophy, as well as art history, courses I really loved. But as I'm taking them, I'm trying to put together what I was learning in the classroom with the chaos that I was seeing in my own generation, which I saw on full display in the public high school I attended. I mean, it was a crazy time in the early 1970s, 
And I saw the same thing in a more muted form in my Christian college. I wanted to see how the Bible related to what I was seeing in my peers and in the culture and the politics of that day. How did this connect with all the things I was studying in school? I went to my professors for help, but they couldn't help me very much, though they were all Christians, and most of them were academically really strong. They were theologically weak and pastorally inept. And then I came across the books of a man named Francis Schaeffer. And in Schaeffer's books that had just come out a few years before this, he started to answer all the questions I was asking. The questions my, and making the connections my professors seemed unwilling to make. So I heard that Schaefer had made a film about this. And so, and, and this film I heard traced the lineage of the chaos of our day through history. And so I found out that there was a church, a two, two and a half hour drive from our school that was going to show the movies. And Nancy and I, who were engaged to be married at the time, made the trip twice. The title of the film and the book that accompanied it is, and now you're going to get the connection, How Should We Then Live? Ezekiel 33.10. The quote is the title of the book, but it only appears on the last page of the book. Schaefer did a great job tracing the history of how we got to where we are today by looking at philosophy and art and literature and film, but he didn't answer the question where he ended. How should we then live? How do we live? How do we live? And I've been working on trying to walk out an answer to this question in my daily life since that time I was introduced to Schaefer's book and film. How do we live? How do we live with work project deadlines, and taxes and mortgages and educating children and the constant assault on our senses by advertising and the news media? How do we live here and now in this place, in this day? I'm really glad Schaefer asked the question, and I'm really glad he pointed me to Ezekiel. We begin to find our answer by looking at another age in which a society was collapsing and God's people were under enormous pressure. That's the age in which the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah lived. So these old, old prophets have something to say to us here in the 21st century. Before we look at the text itself, we need a little background. We need to know a little bit about the prophet Ezekiel. He was a priest living in Israel, awaiting his 30th birthday in 
Israel, you didn't get to work as a priest in the temple until you turned 30. And so that was his whole life was focused on serving in the temple when he turned 30. The kingdom of Judah, where he lived, was a tiny nation at the crossroads of the great empires of the ancient world. Judah's king decided to try to avoid being subject to any of these great kingdoms, and so he resisted control by the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian king came and defeated Judah and took over her capital city, Jerusalem, and then he took back with him to Babylon 10,000 of the nobility along with the wealthiest, most talented, and most influential Israelites. Ezekiel, given that he was from a priestly family, was included in this exile. He was 25 years old. And so there he was in exile, couldn't go anywhere, had to stay in Babylon. Five years passed, and then the Lord called Ezekiel to be his prophet. The Lord showed him a vision that revealed that the Lord was both beautiful and powerful in his splendor and terrifying in his judgments. But the vision that Ezekiel saw was not a vision of God in Israel. God revealed himself in the heart of Babylon. This God, he wanted Ezekiel to know, controls all of history. He controls all nations, even mighty Babylon. And he controlled his people, the Jews. Ezekiel could be sure that the Lord was going to get his way with his people. God sent them into exile because they had for generations added the worship of idols. Now listen to this. This is hard to imagine, but they added the worship of idols and the sins that flow from idolatry to their sacrifices in the temple to the Lord. They actually put up statues to other gods in the temple precincts. And so the Lord sent this group of 10,000 into exile. Jerusalem continued on as it had. The Babylonians put a new king in place. He paid tribute to them. And so during this time, a theological debate began. And it had to do with the spiritual status of the exiles and of those who remained in Jerusalem. People of Jerusalem tended to say that they were the righteous ones and the exiles were under judgment. That's why they were sent into exile. The people in exile were saying that those left behind were under God's judgment and that once He had cleansed Jerusalem, the exiles would return to take over leadership. So there's this back and forth debate. Who's the bad guys? Who's the good guys? Jeremiah was alive at the same time and had not been exiled, lived in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel, who had been forced to move to Babylon, both of them had the same message. All of the Israelites were under judgment for their idolatry and the sins that flowed from that idolatry. The murders, adulteries, oppression of the poor, sensual living, 
all of it, God was bringing judgment on his very chosen people. And so this was Ezekiel's message for six years. And you know what's really interesting? People loved to hear him preach because he was kind of bizarre. He would make little models of Jerusalem and put armies around them and have ladders up like it's under siege. He'd lay on his side for half a year. He wouldn't talk. And, and so people would come and they, they, you know, it was like a novelty. Whoa, what's he doing today? One time he, he dug a hole through the wall that surrounded his house and shoved all his suitcases out of the wall and climbed in the road. He did it every day for a long time. And so people thought, kind of interesting, but we don't really believe what he said. Then the Israelite king in Jerusalem once again tried to get out from under Babylon's control. And this time, the result was a siege of Jerusalem by the full force of the most powerful army in the world. And at the end of chapter 33, the exiles learn the terrible truth. Jerusalem had been flattened. The temple had been reduced to a pile of rubble. So for 32 chapters in Ezekiel, we read of the prophet's pronouncements of judgment. Judgment on Israel, both in Jerusalem and in exile. Judgment on all the nations that surround them. Judgment on Babylon. For 32 chapters over six years, Ezekiel was ignored. But in chapter 33, in the verse that we just read tonight, we have evidence that the message was beginning to get through. And so these people came to Ezekiel, and they finally admitted, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. They were beginning to realize that there were consequences to their continued rejection of the Lord, that they could not claim to be righteous because of certain righteous practices while at the same time continuing in their sins. They felt as if they were rotting, or as another translation puts it, wasting away. How can they live, even survive, under God's judgment? When a people reject God's authority through the Bible, at first they feel free. They can do what they want. Each can find the good life for himself or herself. But like a balloon mortgage, the pursuit of a godless freedom seems to require small payments until the massive balloon payment comes due at the end and you realize that there is no way that you can come up with the money. You cannot find life through the pursuit of freedom apart from God. You can't. We try. The world around us is trying. 
Our society has cast off even the pretenses of being in God's favor. We've rejected him altogether. When you've spent, and I, I think this is the situation in our country right now, when you've spent a lifetime convincing yourself that there is no God, or if there is, he takes no concern with your life, then you don't fear his judgment. But over time, you come to realize that there's no path to freedom that runs through yourself. Life doesn't arise out of seeking to please yourself. And so you end up in despair. You must face your inevitable death in a senseless world whose idols have failed to give you what they promised. Surely our sins and our transgressions are upon us, and we are wasting away because of them. This statement is as true today as it was in Ezekiel's day. The exiles assumed that their sojourn in Babylon would be short, and they had prophets to back their plane. There were, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah had to deal with all kinds of false prophets, and they're saying, hey, don't, don't settle down. Soon we'll be back. Soon things will be back to normal. That's what they assumed. But now Babylon had laid siege on Jerusalem. And it looks like all their hopes for a return to normalcy were about to be reduced to rubble. They, along with their hopes, were wasting away. Now, I want to be plain with you, okay? I think that the United States of America is facing God's judgment. I think it is already present in the chaos we see in our culture and in the feckless institutions that used to stabilize our society. We are the richest nation on earth. We proclaim that we're the last best hope for the world, quoting Abraham Lincoln, yet we increasingly see people living and dying in despair. Popular media report on this despair, people committing suicide, dying of drug overdoses, killing strangers in a shopping mall simply to get attention on social media. But because we've rejected God, no one has an answer beyond a political slogan. We are unlike the exiles in Babylon because though we despair, we have forgotten there is a God to turn to. And that does not mean that God's judgment is stalled. I don't know how or when this judgment will fall, but based on biblical precedent that we can see right in Scripture and based in what we see played out in history over the millennia, I think it's important that we live with this understanding. The United States of America is facing God's judgment. So how are Christians supposed to think about this? How are we to live in a nation under judgment? Now, let me just define a term. I think it's important we define our terms. The word judgment, a judgment is simply a statement of evaluation. We all make judgments all the time about the best ice cream. Judgments about the political candidate most worthy of our vote. Judgments about the best way to use our money. Judgments about all kinds of things. We have judges in our society 
who make decisions based on those judgments that can free you or send you to prison. But what about God's judgments? Either what he says about a matter is true or it's false. If you believe the God of the Bible, you agree that what he says is true. But we often find, try to find ways to wiggle around his judgments and his promises and threats that go with them so that maybe we don't have to conform our life to exactly what he says. And that's exactly what Israel did. They thought that if they lived in the land and brought sacrifices and gave offerings, God was pleased with them. And so they didn't worry about the idols they introduced into the land, into the very temple grounds. They excused their sinful violence and theft and adultery and oppression of the poor. Nothing bad happened. Some of them were getting rich on it. What's the big deal? Ezekiel pronounced God's judgments on them. But it wasn't until it became clear that Babylon was going to utterly destroy Jerusalem and their sacred temple that they realized that their very sins had brought God's punishment and judgment upon them. So that's the setting, and that's how we start. What a happy way to start a retreat, huh? Well, there's more. I want you to consider four things as I conclude this first message. First thing to consider is we have to ask ourselves if we have accepted certain idolatries as normal and so we think that in no way are they in conflict with our worship of God. Now we're going to explore that especially in the next session. So we need, to, we need to ask, are there idols in the land whose threats and promises I follow? And I think it's normal. Second, we need to locate our status in our land based on God's Word. Okay, what's our status in America? We are exiles. An exile is someone driven out from the place where he lives forced to live in a land not his own. Now, that's true of Ezekiel, but Peter, in his first letter in the New Testament, said that we're the same. He addressed his first letter. He opens the letter addressing the elect exiles of the people of God found throughout the world. He tells them that they are to live in fear. That's the fear of God throughout their, the time of their exile. He urges them as sojourners and exiles to resist temptations to sin. So here we have 600 years later, 600 years after Ezekiel, and God's people still see themselves as exiles in the land. God has called us to live outside of the comforts of our homeland. What's that land? It's the land of heaven. We live here, but we, something in us tells us this is not the permanent place. We have another place. God has made us exiles. 
not physical exiles, but spiritual exiles, and quite possibly very soon, social exiles. Just because we've not been driven from the comforts of our houses and not been fired from our jobs, still we are exiles with only superficial differences with the exiles of Ezekiel's day. Okay, so we need to accept that's our status. If you ever feel like, you know, I just never seem to fit in, well, you don't. Make friends with someone who is here from another land. Find out how uncomfortable it is for them. You should feel that way too. <laughs> we are exiles in this land. Third, let's accept the fact, as exiles in Babylon had to accept, that we will experience God's judgments on our nation with the rest of the people we live among. Okay, so how does, how does judgment come? Well, it comes through warfare, social chaos, catastrophes like plague, drought, earthquake, famine that he brings in judgment. He makes no discrimination between believer and non-believer. We all got COVID like everybody else. Our hope, the difference we have, is that our hope extends beyond these earthly calamities. There's a final judgment where it will be revealed that the punishment we deserve has been paid already by our Savior, Jesus. So the judgments of God are not things that we fear. The calamities that come, they come. They come. Even in national calamity, we know our status before God in our homeland is secure. You kill me, I go to be with Jesus. There's a comfort in that. Whether it's a threat of violence or a doctor talking in your ear. <laughs> Number four, finally, we need to recognize the goodness and mercy of God's judgments. Now, we tend to shy away from thinking about God's judgments. And that's, I think that's understandable. Revelation 19 makes us uncomfortable. Jesus enters the scene riding a white horse out of heaven. The rider of the horse is called Faithful and True, and I'm quoting now Revelation. In righteousness, this warrior king on this white horse, in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So he makes his judgments in wrath and fury. That's not comfortable. <laughs> A righteous judge evaluates human behavior according to a transcendent standard. The Word of God doesn't change, applies to everybody. And then he takes action to see that what is wrong is made right. And we long for that. We long for that in Ukraine, and in Israel, and Gaza, and in Montgomery and Frederick counties. 
We want to see what's wrong, what's broken, what's in defiance of the transcendent, perfect Word of God. We want to see it made right. And so we should love God's judgments. When He makes it right, it's called justice. The wrongdoer is punished, and the victims of his wrongdoing are appropriately compensated. We live for this. This is what we long to see. But even for those who brought on God's discipline in Israel back in that day, it's also an act of mercy. See, our sins lead us to despair, and then death and even final judgment with punishment in hell. Every hardship in this life is a call to look to our Savior to deliver us. Hebrews 12, what does it say? God disciplines us for our good, so He will conform us into His image. So God's judgment and God's discipline is a good thing. It's His alarm bell that wakes us up to our need so that we can share in His holiness and escape the final judgment when He judges every individual who's ever lived on this earth. Now, children, I want to say something to you. Kylie, you knew this was coming, huh? Yeah. Okay. One time I told my students that when I was preaching, I said, did you know that as much as you can see me, I can see you? And some of them were horrified. <laughs> when your parents correct you, and maybe they bring consequences with the correction. They are acting as God's hand in your life to shape you. And it's a good thing. If you were just left to go your own way, you end up in despair. And so I, I want you to, to hear this and hear it in the context of your family, because some of these bigger judgments that I mention, you know, you don't really feel them. you got great parents. They shield you from these things. But it's important you realize this. God's judgments set what is wrong right, and that's a good thing. Even if we live through the exercise of His judgments on our nation, as Ezekiel did, it's a good thing. So we've got to learn to anticipate God's good judgments. Amen. And we need to set hardship. We need to experience this hardship along with those who experience it in despair. Because you know what? I think it's going to happen as people increasingly realize that money cannot buy happiness nor freedom as they define it. People are going to start to look for Jesus. Right now, it's a little hard to do evangelism. People are like, eh, I don't know about that. Are you one of those MAGA people? I really think people are going to start to say, our sins and our transgressions are upon us and we rot away. We rot away. We are exiles living in a land under judgment. And we know that God's judgments on our land will be painful. And we know that we'll experience that pain with the rest of the people of our land. So let's go back to our question. How 
then should we live? How can we live in light of God's judgments? And we're going to move forward in our answer to that question tomorrow morning in the next session. Let me pray for you and me. Lord, the world we live in, um, it, it, it shapes the way we look at things. We see a virus as just a virus and not a work of God. We fear global warming and not your wrath. So I pray, Lord, that you would shape how we think about how you you work in the world, and that we would so submit to you so that we'd not end up in the despair of the exiles, but that we would turn and be filled with hope as exiles. So please teach us, and I pray, Lord, as we're together, we just have lots of rich conversations, lots of laughter and enjoyment, because it's so good to be together all in one place for a whole weekend. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.